Uh, dear saints, this is the word of the Lord. Please do give it your full attention. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's son, also the sons of Malchor, or Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. And you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years. And he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. The word of the Lord. Saints, let's pray and ask God's blessing and favor over this time in his word. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And by the strength and power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us grace this morning as we consider the final verses of the book of Genesis. And as we, for the last time, uh, expound upon the book of Genesis, at least in this series. Lord, give our ears hearing, our minds understanding, our hearts believing and our feet and hands action. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. As you are gathering yourselves, I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we come now to the final verses in the book of Genesis, And to our final sermon in this series that we began back, I had to look it up, on April 23rd, 2017. We praise God for his preserving grace and the strength to teach his glorious word. I pray that you have grown and have been strengthened in these past four years through the teachings of the book of Genesis. Uh, You made it. Some of you are are still standing, praise be to God. We pray that God would continue to help us stand as we march on and look forward to the day of his arrival. We come now to the final days of Joseph. And this book, as you may have noticed, it ends with so much death. There is the death of Jacob and his funeral. And now there's the death of Joseph and his funeral. Uh, This book that has begun and that begins with so much life ends now with so much death. Uh, You remember all of the life in the beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God brought forth life or light out of darkness. God brings shape out of the void. Life was called forth into the sky, on the ground, and in the sea. 
in the beginning of this book, we learned that God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. God called man along with his woman uh, that will bring be brought forth from his side to be fruitful and to multiply. She was given life by way of man's rib. Make more life on the earth. Flourish in this very good creation of God's was the command. God even promised that life, the life that Adam had could be potentially elevated to an even greater life if he walked in obedience to the command of God structured by way of a covenant. Genesis 2 and verse 16 God said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. If man would have obeyed, he would have been given the right to the tree of life, which would have been his reward for obedience. He would have been given eternal life. He would have entered into an eternal Shabbat, Sabbath, if he had obeyed the command of God. But we all know, because you've been good students of the book of Genesis, that Adam did not keep the command of God. Adam broke covenant with God. He and his wife listened to and believed the lie of Satan. Satan came and twisted the word of God. He came and presented himself, Satan did, as a new and better lawgiver. He came and presented himself as a new and better ruler with better promises. Satan took the name of God in vain. He accused God of lying. He accused God of withholding goodness from his image bearers. He accused God of being intimidated of the potential of his creatures to attain the status of deity. God only wants to be the only God, Adam. He knows that if you eat of this, you'll be like him. He doesn't want that. God's trying to hold you back. Adam and Eve believe the word of their new master. And they rebelled against God. Adam, the one who had been given headship over all of creation. And within this covenant made with God, he breaks the covenant of works. Adam exalted his wife and a piece of fruit and the word of a slithering serpent over and above the word of his creator, God. Adam believed the lie of Satan. And in doing so, he plunged the whole of humanity into the depths of sin. Because Adam stood as our God-appointed representative, what he performed, what he did, he performed on behalf of all whom he represented, and he represented all of humanity. In one sin, the one sin of Adam... Adam violated the whole of God's law. In in one sin, the one sin of Adam caused the whole of humanity to die as a result. Have you ever asked yourself, but for just one sin? 
I've eaten worse things than fruit. All the whole of humanity dies in sin for this one transgression. One act of partaking of fruit was enough to plunge the whole of humanity into sin. Well, sin is that which is against the holy character of God and God's holy law. Sin is lawlessness. David, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah in order to cover up his sin, understood that ultimately his sin was against God. Uh, When he was finally confronted by Nathan the prophet, you remember that Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him a story of a rich man who has all that he needs, all that he could ever want, and yet he steals from this man who has nothing. And David is indignant. Who is this man? This man deserves punishment. And Nathan the prophet points to David and says, You are the man. Uh, We have a record of David's confession of sin in Psalm 51, where he says, Against you, he is asking God to create in him a clean heart, but he ultimately says, Against you, God, and you only. Imagine that. He's committed adultery. He has murdered an innocent man. And yet David's confession is against you, God, and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David, in Psalm 32, is crushed during the time of not repenting, crushed under the weight of his sin. He says, my bones were wasting within me when I did not confess my sin. But then finally I confess my sin and I see that you are a merciful God. But in the time that he did not confess, and in the time that he finally does confess, do you notice that David does not say, and I I heard this recently in a sermon by James Dolezal, David does not say, I have failed myself. I sinned and I have let myself down, he says. Brothers and sisters, sin is not disappointing yourself. Sin is not disappointing your mother or your father. My son, who's not in here, thankfully, for the first time in all of his uh, academic career, he had to clip down, which is uh, basically it. you got in trouble today. You need to write your name on the board for some of you who are my age. You got a demerit for some of you who are older than me. He was devastated. He said, all I did was... and he. Tried to blame it on the teacher first. All I did was I started to talk to my neighbor. But were you supposed to be talking to your neighbor? No. The reason why he cried as he did when we drove home was because he thought I was going to be upset with him. That that he had let me and mom down. Sin is not ultimately letting mom or dad down. It's not ultimately letting you yourself down. Uh, You don't forgive yourself. You are not the standard of what is right. Now, now there is an element of, yes, being disappointed in what you've done. But sin ultimately is against God. God is the standard of right. God is the standard of holiness. You and I are not the standard of holiness. We have fallen short of the glory of God, all of us together. David does not say that when he sinned, that he sinned against fellow man, which is true, he did. But David says, 
that his sin goes down to the very roots of what sin ultimately is. The bottom of sin is a sin against God. The bottom and root of all sin is a sin against God. He sinned against man. But the creator of man is God. Therefore, every sin against man is ultimately a sin against God, who's created in the image of God, or man, man who's created in the image of God. Without God, there would be no way to define what sin is against our fellow man. This is very important. We don't wait till a certain percentage of the population decides that we are okay with something for something to no longer be sin. Sin is what God determines what it is. We don't wait till 51% of the population says, yes, we're now okay with this. We are not the standard of what sin is. God defines sin. We do not. Adam did not let himself down. He let down his God. He violated the command of God and in doing so, he broke the whole of God's law. The Apostle John said that if you sin in one aspect of the law, you sin in the whole law. When you break one, you violate one, you violate the whole. The law is a unit. The whole law must be kept. There's not multiple choice in the law of God. When we're reading the law each Lord's Day, we're not saying, if you like this one, go ahead and obey it. If you don't, no worries. There are at least nine more others that you can adhere to. The whole law must be kept. All of the law. And Adam broke all of the law. In violating God's command. What was the result? Well, we know it, don't we? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin, or just as through one man, sin entered the whole world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Verse 14, And death reigned, Romans 5.14, Death reigned from Adam until Moses, for those who believe that there was no law before Moses. Uh, Paul says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the offense and likeness of Adam. And verse 18, and so through, and so then as through one transgression, there resulted the condemnation to all men. God promised in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Brothers and sisters, God did not, cannot, and will not lie. Subsequent to the fall of man, we are given a picture of man falling deeper and deeper into the depths of depravity. Image bearers whose bodies and minds and hearts and desires were polluted by sin began to do what they believed was right in their own eyes. And God did not lie when he said, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. The whole of humanity is wiped out. In the flood of judgment of God. And dear saints. As we come to the end of the book of Genesis. uh, This final sermon in our long journey together. We are once again given the picture and the promise of death. You'll notice the book of Genesis does not end with the classic phrase. Found at the end of most fairy tales. And they lived happily ever after. This is not a Disney movie. This is not Joseph, the coat of many colors. This is God's holy word. Joseph dies. We love the movie, don't we? Coat of many colors, Joseph. But the end of the movie doesn't end like this. The final words of the book of Genesis are, 
and he was and he was buried in a coffin. Begins with let there be and he was buried in a coffin. Joseph gathers his family, his brothers, not necessarily his 11 brothers, but it is those who are of Israel. It may be that some of his older brothers had already passed, but he's now with his brothers, the children of Israel that are greatly multiplying in the nation of Egypt. Joseph calls them together and here's what he says to them. Here are his first words. I'm about to die. I am about to die. Over the past few sermons, as I said earlier, we've talked about death a lot. It is a message that has been placed before us. That's why we're talking about it. And each time the subject comes up, we may feel tempted to uh, have the need to exit the building for a time. Here he goes, talking about death yet again. I say, and I believe that we're far too uncomfortable with the subject of death. And it's reality. Brothers and sisters, amidst the death that Joseph was walking towards, which would lead him to eternal life, we also are walking towards death that leads us to eternal life. And we know that there is hope there, don't we? When man fell, the darkness of sin began to shroud the goodness of God's creation. When Satan believed that he had spoiled the plans of God, And his design for a holy earthly temple inhabited by men and women who live to exalt him. God gave a promise of redemption. Genesis chapter three and verse 15. And I will put enmity. He speaks to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Dear saints of God. You may be wondering, as I usually do, what's he going to say? And with God's help this morning, we will consider three points. There is only one point this morning. There is only one message this morning. And I submit to you, it's the message of the whole book of Genesis. And it's contained within the final words of Joseph's words. Even with all of the fascinating testimonies of the lives of faithful men and women throughout this entire book, the main message of the book of Genesis The main message that is meant to be displayed in the lives of those faithful men and women is found in the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman who will destroy the works of Satan and restore his people to himself, rescue them from the punishment that they deserve. It is the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. It's the message of the whole of God's holy inspired word. Here it is. God will redeem his people and remember their sin no more. That's the message of the Bible. They shall be his people and he shall be their God. Listen to this. And no one will have to teach his neighbor. For his neighbor already shall know and love God. Imagine that. The neighbor who you give awkward looks and glances to, awkward hellos to. The neighbor that you're waiting to just share the gospel with one of these days. He will already know God. That is the promise of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, this is the message of Genesis. And it's the final message that Joseph leaves his brothers with as he departs. Uh, I wonder, brothers and sisters, what does God commend to us 
about the life of Joseph as the example that is worth imitating. Think about Joseph and all of his life. Pastor Isaiah and I were driving the other day and we're just considering all of the ways in which Joseph's life has blessed our life. I wonder, what does the Holy Spirit say is the great act of faith performed by Joseph in all of his acts? Was it the endurance while in prison, knowing that God would judge correctly? Was it the vision that God gave him that he would uh, one day stand before his brothers and they would bow before him and that he believed in it? Or maybe it was uh, resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife. Maybe this is the hallmark of Joseph's act and life of faith. Or maybe it was the faith he showed in God's judgment when his brothers came and asked for forgiveness and he forgave them. Brothers and sisters, all of these acts, they are worthy of our emulation. They are worthy of our imitation. And they may very well stand out to us as being very important in the life of Joseph. And they are. But God himself, God the Holy Spirit, highlights the apex of the life of Joseph. Being found in the final words of Joseph. Hebrews eleven twenty two says, by faith. Here it is. What is it, Holy Spirit? What is the great act of Joseph's life? What is the great mark of his faith? The Holy Spirit says, by faith, when he was dying, Joseph made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Joseph, in all of the brilliant instances of his faith, a life of faith, in this moment, the moment that we are considering this, this morning, this moment is highlighted as the most, as the moment that most pleased God the Holy Spirit. Joseph, uh, just like his father before him, in his most apparently weak and fragile moment, he's about to die. You, you remember the scene that we had of Jacob, uh, Bringing himself to stand upon his staff and then laying back down with all the strength and energy that he had, calling his sons to believe in faith. And yet here we are given yet again another picture of what would appear to be another weak and frail man, but not weak in his faith. Calling his brothers, calling his children, believe in God. The greatest act of faith displayed in what appears to be his greatest moment of weakness. It was when his eyes, like the eyes of his father before him, and his father's father before him, were dim of sight. But they were only dim of earthly sight. They were vibrant of heavenly sight. It was this moment that is commended by God. That brought most God, that brought God the most glory. Spurgeon says, Oh, that we have been given times. Oh, the faith that we have been given in times that we have felt great weakness. He says, In times of great weakness, God has been greatly glorified. He says, The prayer over which we groaned and estimated as being weak and not true supplication may be sweeter, a sweeter communion than other prayers that we thought more highly of. 
your weakest prayers, he says. The ones that you thought, I made a fool of myself. I didn't even know what I was saying. Could be those very prayers that were the sweetest in God's sight. Now, the gospel witness that we believe we stammered through, he says. The witness that caused us to lament in bitterness of soul because we thought we had delivered it with such weakness may have been more precious in God's sight than a fluent discourse to which we congratulate ourselves. Have you ever shared the gospel and thought, I didn't make any sense. I don't even know what I was saying. I'm sure I probably led them further away from Christ than to Christ. God says, even that He can use for His glory, even more than some some of the times where you thought, I did a good job that time. I was fluent, I was flowing. The Holy Spirit was on me. The test, He says, by which we try ourselves are often inaccurate. It may very well be that when we read our own biographies in the light of eternity, we shall be surprised to notice that God has been glorified in those things that we wept over in our weakness. What encouragement is that? Are you weak? Paul says, then God is strong. Brothers and sisters, God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearances, and so do we. But God looks at the heart. Joseph, one of the great men of the Old Testament, calls his family and says to them in verse 24, look at it, please. I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land and the land which you promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. Joseph, like his father Jacob before him, looks onward to paradise. He looks onward and sees the comfort found in Abraham's bosom. And as Joseph looks ahead into the rest, the rest that has been laid up for him, he takes a moment to look back And call his brothers to remember the Abrahamic covenant. And also the covenant of grace. Joseph gives us a great godly perspective on the reality of this story and of this book. This book is not about Joseph. The book is not even about Jacob or Isaac. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Noah. And the book is surely not about Adam. We have been studying these men and their lives for the past four years. And I pray that what you have seen at the end of their biography is this. What is true about Joseph is true about all of these other men that we have examined. They all died. And they were buried. And Joseph reminds his brothers and also reminds you and I through his word. That he too will die. Because the story was never really about him anyways. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die. But listen to the next word. But God. I'm about to die, but God. 
dear saints, I commend to you that if you could have any final words, if God would give you the strength to utter any final words and for you to be mindful of those final words, I pray that they would be something like this. I am about to go- to die, but God will take care of you. Your kids, your family, they need to hear that. Your life does not begin and end with me. It begins and ends with God. So if I die, it doesn't matter. God will take care of you. And God will bring you up from this land and take you to the land that he promised Abraham on oath. How important is it? We, not, we may not think about it this way. How important is it that, it that Joseph did die? It's very important. That Joseph would remind his brothers, it's not about me, brothers. It's about God. Don't look to me, brothers. I can't save you. God can. It's vitally important that Joseph dies. So that his brothers would not learn or become dependent upon Joseph. But he would point them to the one whom they should be dependent upon, God. Let me get technical with you for just a moment. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed before anything that is came to be. Our confession confesses and we confess the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning. And yet one God who is not divided in nature and being. Uh, There was, there is, and there always shall be, listen to this, perfect communion, perfect fellowship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our confession, chapter 2, paragraph 2. God, listen closely to this. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient. All sufficient. Not standing in need of any creature which he hath made. Not deriving any glory from them, but manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone the fountain of all being. Whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. Before anything was that is, God was, is, and always shall be self-sufficient. He is all saved. Not in need of any creature that he has made. God, uh, the infinite one, in his infinite unsearchable wisdom, eternally decreed to, to create. And that is, there was never a time or a moment when God did not decide that he would create. But he did not create out of a lack of something in the Trinity. God not be, uh, God did not create because he was lonely. God did not create because he needed glory from you and I. He derives no glory from his creatures. We don't add glory to the glory of God and we don't take away from the glory of God. When God decide or decreed to create, creation is a manifestation of his glory. Why did God create? It's a manifestation of His glory. What are the heavens and space and all of the magnificent stars about? What is their end and purpose? They are a manifestation of the glory of God. 
It was one of the many ways in which God displays His glory. It was not a desperate act for companionship or a desperate act for people to acknowledge Him. He's in need of no one. This may come as a shock to some. God doesn't need you. And God doesn't need me. That we would think so highly of, of ourselves that we would think that, that there's something in us that God needs. He's not in need of anyone or anything. Then why then are we saved? It's a manifestation of his glory and his grace. This is one of the ways in which God manifests how wonderful he is. When people say uh, to those who have passed, they pass because God needed them more than he, we, we did. False. Never say God needed someone more than we did. God didn't need anybody. God is in need of no thing and no one. It is that kind of man-centered theology that has poisoned the gospel and poisoned the church. This is why most messages are man-centered and not God-centered. No, this is God's story. And God, before time began... In what is known as eternity, where there is no time, past, before there was time, made what is known, made what is known as the pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption. The pactum of salutis, as defined by Richard Muller, is the pre-temporal inter-trinitarian agreement of the Father and the Son concerning the covenant of grace and its ratification in and through the work of the Son incarnate. While this is defined as an agreement between the Father and the Son, the Spirit is not excluded from this covenant act of the intertrinitarian Godhead, if you will. Our confession, chapter 7, uh, paragraph 3, this covenant, the covenant of grace, i.e. covenant of redemption, revealed in the, in the Gospels, first to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterward, by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in the eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam were saved and did obtain life and blessed immortality. immorality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in a state of innocency. What does all of this have to do with our text? I say to you, Joseph speaks prophetically concerning all of these things, concerning the message of God to his people and to all creatures made in God's image. We died. We died. Joseph says, I die. And he dies because we all died. But God has covenanted with himself. To save a people for his own glory. I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you. And bring you up from this land. To the land which he promised on oath to Abraham. To Isaac and to Jacob. God has made a promise. God will fulfill his promises. God has been using men and women. That he has foreknown and foreloved. As tools to advance his purposes. But they would all eventually die. God would not. Joseph leaves his brothers with a final testimony. 
Think about his words. Here's the final words of Joseph. I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up out of this land into a land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you shall take my bones up from this place. And Joseph was buried in a coffin. His final words say nothing about the pit that he was placed into before he was sold into slavery. He says nothing about being taken from the pit to the palace. Ha! Does he say that everyone was out to destroy him, but look at him now? Does he speak of his brothers who came and finally did bow their knee to him? What we find is not an Egyptian ending. It's not a worldly ending. Let let me give you a, a modern comparison now that my mind is starting to search. Joseph is not saying the end is near. I'll draw the final curtain. Some of you might note that song. Sung by old blue eyes. He didn't do it his way. And you know that Frank Sinatra in his song, I did it my way. Boast of not bowing his knee. He speaks about how at the end of his life, he did it his way. Did you know that Frank Sinatra, when singing that song and one of the final times, actually collapsed while singing, I did it my way. And it was not long after that, that he learned that he was not going to do it his way, but that he would do it God's way. And the knee that he said he did not bow in his song, he finally did bow when he stood before God and made an account for all of his boastings. When Joseph is not boasting and saying, I did it my way. He's not ending his life like an Egyptian. He's ending his life as a Hebrew, as a sojourner. The glory of Egypt is not mentioned in praise. Egypt is totally eclipsed by Canaan and its glory by the glory of the precious promises of God. We don't do it our way. This is God's way. Joseph dies as a son of Israel, not a son of Egypt. Speaking of the Abrahamic covenant and yet again alluding to the covenant of grace, reiterating his hope in God and his promises, he calls his sons Look forward to to your departing. You will leave this land. God will take you up out of here. Jacob or Joseph dies in the same way that he lived by faith in God Almighty. Joseph considers the promises of God far greater than the temporal glory of Egypt. The promises of God were more precious than any valuable and any earthly riches that would have been offered to him in Egypt. Concerning the bones of Joseph, uh, the first fruit of faith was that Joseph would not be buried as an Egyptian. He could have been embalmed. He could have been placed in the tombs along with the princes and kings of Egypt. He was a royal. He was of royal rank. He could have accepted a royal burial 
as the dignitaries of Egypt. But he, like Moses, identifies himself with his brothers. He is not an Egyptian. Joseph points to God's future visit. And he does so with great unshakable certainty. God will visit you. Joseph in his dying breath says, I'm not God, but God will come and bring you up out of this land. Just as he promised. You have something better than me, he says. I'm about to die, but you have something better. You've got God. I will no longer be here to represent you, but God will represent you. God has always represented you. And you, don't you leave me here. Just like his father before him, don't you leave me here. You take my bones, you put them in this box. And this box with my bones in it will be a reminder to you. It's a message to you, the message that I'm proclaiming to you, that God will return and bring you up out of this land. Think about this. We have seen the last of Joseph. Last time we saw Joseph was at his father's funeral. 60 years earlier. From the time that we last saw Joseph speaking to his brothers, it has been 60 years and now he's 110 years old. Did he continue to live by faith in those 60 years? What was he doing? What other acts were there in those 60 years? You know, the scriptures don't record any of them for us. Why? Don't you want to know what happened to Joseph between the year uh, 59 or 60 to 110? What was he doing? Why doesn't the Bible tell us? Because this book is not about him. The scriptures will tell you all of the things that are related to redemptive purposes. If it's not about the redeeming purposes of God, it's not included. Why? Because this is God's story. Not anybody else's story. Brothers and sisters, that should be encouraging for us. This is God's story. When we get to Revelation, God willing, in a month or two, it's still God's story. It's not the story of America or Russia or China. It's God's story. As you sojourn throughout your life and you go to work tomorrow or some of your kids go back to school or if you're at home with babies as my, my wife is now or my mom will be. You're living your life, but this is God's story. It's not until we come to the very end of the life of Joseph that we are given a redeeming, relevant moment in the life of Joseph. The reason why it's recorded for us is because it's related to the covenant that God made with his people. So God, the Holy Spirit says, oh, that's important. Write that down. I'm about to die. But God will uphold his word. It's the message of the book of Genesis, brothers and sisters. We have died. We have fallen into absolute depravity, absolute inability. God has promised that he will redeem us from our sin and do away with the curse that we brought upon ourselves. And God will put out the fire that we started. And as you listen to Joseph, we are given encouragement of our times as well. The days are getting darker. Since the time that Christ said, I will return, 
his return has become nearer. All creation groans with pains for the redeeming of our Lord. More and more the church is finding more and more challenges against the world. Dear saints, what is our hope? Well, we don't have a coffin to look at, do we? We don't have a coffin to remind us of the promises of God. We have a cross. And an empty tomb with no bones in it. As the days get darker, we look to the cross and to the empty tomb. We have the precious promise of the eternal word of Christ as he has promised, I will come quickly. Keep oil in your lampstands. Watch and pray. Joseph takes a coffin, not a grave. Doesn't want a grave. He wants a coffin with his bones in it. So that when God did fulfill his promise and visit his people, that they could take him right away. And he wants it to be seen. It was apparently somewhere where everyone could see it. So that when it was time to go and in between, people could say, what is that, mom? Those are the bones of Joseph. Why are they there? So that when we leave this place, we will take him with us. How do we know that we are going to leave this place? God promised him. God promised his father. God promised our fathers. We will not stay here. The bones of Joseph are a reminder to you, son. Are a reminder to you, daughter. This is not our home. When the time came for Pharaoh to say, up. Get out of here. There would be no excavating of Joseph's bones. There would be no breaking into a pyramid. Let's go up. The box of Joseph, the coffin of Joseph on the shoulders of men as they leave the land of Egypt and enter into the land of promise. Put my bones there. I'll be ready to go when God is. He wasn't visible for worship, though. That's important. His body wasn't a shrine. It wasn't like the shrine of Muhammad in Medina. Where people come and make a pilgrimage to. No. They would not. They were not there to venerate Mo- Joseph. The bones of Joseph are a display of faith. They are a warning to the people of, of God who are, who are in Egypt. Listen to this. The pleasures of Egypt don't satisfy. And, and he had every... Right and experience to tell them from experience they won't satisfy. And Moses later would too. They don't satisfy. Moses identifies himself with Christ rather than identifying himself as a son of Egypt. Because Egypt won't satisfy. It's not the promised land. So when joy grows dim and miles in this world seem to evaporate. Remember this, dear saints, Joseph says to you, God will visit you quickly. God will come. It's a reminder to you. Think about this, brothers and saints, are your thoughts, hopes and dreams surrounding this present world? Are you in pursuit of only the American dream? Is your goal to live in a house, in a gated community, two car garage, children who are college graduates and have a nice retirement plan? And will that be your greatest treasure? Or are the promises of God that he shall return and take you out of Egypt, take you out of Babylon, 
take you out of this present passing world, reunite you with Christ, bring you into heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, have you glorified forever. Is that your greatest treasure? I pray that it is. Our brother Scott, by the grace of God, has gotten a new job. And the Lord has given him insight. And in the midst of the uh, interview, he was asked, ask us some questions about our business. And God gave him insight to ask profound questions, so profound that they they said, we'd like to invite you to come and meet and have a conversation with the owners of this company who are located in Israel. On the day that Scott goes to the land of Israel, I pray that he would say to those who are in awe of Israel, there is a greater Israel promised to us. One where there is no war between Palestine and Israel. One where there is no war between Orthodox Jew and Christian. One where they are not traveling to find a place where Jesus supposedly rose from the dead or a place where supposedly Jesus was was crucified. But that they would look up to the heavens and be uh, given ears to hear the sounds of the trumpet when Christ breaks through the clouds and brings his people home. Christ will surely visit you. And in the meantime, he will use all of the pains, all of the tears to cause us to long for the new Jerusalem. When you have pain, when you fret, when you wake up in the morning and your bones are uh, not as loosey-goosey as they used to be. When you are let down, when you are disappointed, when you are fearful, when you are getting reports that yet another one of your family members has COVID and yet another one is in the hospital and they're not looking good. Believe it or not, they are all encouragements to look not to the bones of Joseph, but to the cross and empty tomb of Christ. This world will become a stony furnace for you who only take pleasure here. The coffin says, no, the empty tomb says, the story is not over. And the coffin says to those of Israel, there will be a sequel. Thank God the Bible doesn't end with the book of Genesis. It sounds dim. It sounds uh, depressing. But the book that begins with life, life, life ends with death, but it's not the end. There will be an exodus. There will be a Leviticus. There'll be a Numbers, a Deutero. There'll be a, a, a Joshua raised. A judges of Israel will come. Uh, the people will demand a king. God will raise up a king. One who is after his own heart. And God will establish his throne forever. God will use his people to call. The prophets to call his people to turn to him. To repent of their sin. God will speak through his prophets that there will come a deliverer who would save Israel. One that is a son of Abraham, a son of David. 
One who is the fulfillment of the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, bring salvation and blessing to the nations. And there on the banks of the river Jordan, the prophet John the Baptist identifies the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who came to destroy the works of Satan and who has destroyed the works of Satan. He is the greater Joseph, the greater Abraham, the greater David. Christ, if you ever notice, does not speak of God's visitation. He is God's visitation. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He does not speak of a deliverance. He is deliverance. He is the great Savior for sinners. There are no bones of Christ here on earth. There is glorified flesh in heaven who is Christ the risen one. We don't bow to a dead Savior. And Christ demonstrates that for all who place their hope in him, there is a land of glory laid up for them. But it does not overshadow the one who causes the whole land to shine brightly, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has visited his people and he will visit us once more again. And that visitation will be an eternal one. There will no longer be a separation after that visitation. We will be and remain with him in glory. And that day will never end. I'd like to end with the last words of the last book of the Bible. We've heard the words of the first book. Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Dear saints, let's stand. Let's pray.